The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 253. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter at Brian McClanahan. Like my Facebook page at Brian McClanahan. And of course, subscribe to my YouTube page at Brian McClanahan, where you can watch this podcast. If you don't want to find all those social media buttons on your own, just go out to my, or social media sites, I should say. Just go out to my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, McClanahan.com. At the top of the page, you'll find all my social media links or buttons. Just click on those, take you right out to the account while you're there. Give me an email address, and I'll give you a free ebook and audiobook, Forgotten Founders. I read the audiobook to you, so it's a great deal. You can also support The Brian McClanahan Show by going to McClanahanAcademy.com, where it's always free to enroll. When you do enroll, you get a link to a class, a free class, 10 Myths of American History, so it's a win-win. You also have access to McClanahan Academy, which has seven courses for sale. It's the way that I support this podcast, so if you want to help me, do the podcast, you can purchase a course or seven. I've got lots of great stuff there. Of course, on the war, my newest course is U.S. History 1865. I've got part two in the works, so that's coming up. It'll be U.S. History 1865 the present. I've got a course on Reconstruction, one on American Constitutions, one on Hamilton, one on Secession, one on the Declaration, a lot of great stuff there at McClanahan Academy. So all of those courses help support the Brian McClanahan Show. You can also support the show by going to brianmcclanahan.com forward slash support. You can throw a few pennies my way, help keep the lights on, help keep the podcast going. You can also buy your book plate, which if you have a Brian McClanahan book, I'll sign it for you, send it to you, stick it on your book. Great way to do it. You can support the show also by going to that brianmcclanahan.com. At the top of the page, you'll see a tab that says shop. Click on, click on that, and it'll take you out to my Red Bubble account where you can buy all of your Brian McClanahan show logo, apparel, or gear, or whatever you want. Lots of great stuff there. So if you want to support the show and advertise for the show at the same time, you can get your Brian McClanahan show logo on all kinds of cool stuff. And don't forget to uh, share this podcast around on social media. Also, uh, rate it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. That way, more and more people see it, and uh, we'll help get the word out. So I do appreciate all your support. And always, please send your podcast ideas. I do read them even if I don't respond back to you. So that way I can keep the show interesting to you. Now, all that said, let's talk about the topic of the day, which is James Madison and the Bill of Rights. Now, this is a piece that appeared in Politico a couple of days ago, um, and it is entitled How a Gerrymander Nearly Costs Us the Bill of Rights. Subtitle, James Madison wanted to join Congress so he could amend the new Constitution. Patrick Henry was determined to stop him. It's by Richard Labunsky, who is a professor emeritus of journalism from the University of Kentucky. He wrote a book, James Madison, The Struggle for the Bill of Rights. Now, I'm going to read this thing because it's rather interesting. It's not correct in a lot of cases, but it's interesting. And and the, the way he does this, and of course, he's supporting the Supreme Court overturning the ability for the states to gerrymander districts based on a false assumption that somehow you have, when you vote, um, equality of outcome, right? And that's just not the way it works. Um, 
or that somehow we have a parliamentary system. That wasn't the way it was designed. We have single-member district plurality voting, which is not parliamentarian, which means, yes, the states get to draw up the districts, and yes, there's nothing the general government can do about it at all. The argument that was used in that Supreme Court case, and I'll get into this, was a faulty argument. But regardless, let's talk about the history in this piece as well. So when he, he begins, when the Supreme Court decided early this summer that federal judges cannot interfere if states drew election, election district boundaries that favor the party in power, Chief Justice John Roberts invoked the Founding Fathers. Even James Madison had been the target of gerrymandering, Roberts wrote in the 5-4 Rousseau versus Common Cause decision. Using that as evidence to show that the founders tolerated this practice and viewed it as an unavoidable part of our political system. But before you conclude, gerrymandering had the blessing of the founders, and we are forever stuck with it. It helps to have the full story. Now, first of all, gerrymandering did have the blessing of the founders uh, because it's named after Elbridge Gerry of Massachusetts. Now, this was used all over the place. It's not something that was just used in Virginia. The founders created it, right? So it certainly had the blessing of the founders. But he's saying, before you conclude that, you, that it does, he doesn't say that it didn't have the blessing of the founders. In fact, no one really complained about it. I mean, people would make some snide comments about it, that you're doing these things. It's, and it was a slight, just the term gerrymandering or gerrymandering has, uh, has some, uh, some negative connotations to it. Uh, but then he goes to an, to an argument that doesn't fit his topic sentence. Before you include gerrymandering had the blessing of the founders, we are forever, and we are forever stuck with it, it helps have the full story. But he doesn't talk about how the founders opposed it. He goes into an incongruent argument. What the Supreme Court did not mention was that if Madison's political opponents had kept him out of the first Congress, the results would have been catastrophic. Catastrophic. There likely would have been no Bill of Rights then or perhaps ever. An anti-federalist might have succeeded in completely rewriting the Constitution. In other words, a gerrymander before it was officially called by that name, of course, might have irreparably damaged the very document Chief Justice Don Robert, John Roberts has spent his career defending. These two things don't make, they don't link up, right? The arguments don't make any sense. This is a journalism professor who doesn't know how to write journalism. This is a horrible argument and a horrible piece. The arguments don't, they're non-sequitur here. I mean, this, well, the founders didn't agree with it, but the reason we, it was because it might have cost the Bill of Rights. Well, nobody said that. In fact, as Kevin Goodsman points out in his James Madison and the Making of America, I mean, they weren't really too worked up over this. If Madison wasn't elected to Congress, well, I mean, he would just go into the new administration somewhere. Okay. Um, now, the other part of this, the results would have been catastrophic. There likely would have been no Bill of Rights. Now, there was a large faction of American founders who didn't think we needed a Bill of Rights. Madison himself wasn't necessarily certain that a Bill of Rights were necessary. Right? I mean, a lot of people are arguing that. Well, I mean, what do we need a Bill of Rights for? Because the fact is the Constitution can't abridge the freedom of the press because it says it doesn't have the power to do it. Right? So, I mean, what's the point of a Bill of Rights? There were many arguments for this. Roger Sherman of Connecticut was simply was saying the same things. A lot of the proponents of the document were saying, look, this is a stupid argument. We don't need a Bill of Rights because the document doesn't give us the power to do these things you're worried about. So Bill of Rights is unnecessary. So would this, would this have been catastrophic? 
Well, not if you followed the original intent of the Constitution, it would have been catastrophic. Uh, and anti-federalists would, would have succeeded in completely writing the Constitution. Hallelujah! Yeah, that's that would be a good thing, right? Because the Constitution has been disastrous. The Constitution stopped working in 1789. Again, as Goodsman points out, uh, by 1790, even proponents of it were saying, my gosh, why did I vote for this thing in Virginia? This thing is a disaster. So uh, he then can, continues. The story begins in 1788 after Virginia ratified the U.S. Constitution in June. The state's General Assembly had to create 10 congressional districts deciding which counties who signed each one. At the time, Patrick Henry, a member of the state house, was Virginia's most powerful legislator and had almost complete control over the House and Senate. His influence over the legislature was so obvious that George Washington wrote to Madison, Henry has only to say this to be law, and it is law. Henry was also a leading anti-federalist who opposed the new plan and feared the Constitution would create a consolidated government that would be too powerful. Well, he was right. I mean, so what, what who is this guy? What uh, Labunsky is saying is correct. Henry had tried to stop Virginia from approving the Constitution at the state's ratifying convention. For three weeks, in a sweltering con con uh, converted theater in downtown Richmond, he had vigorously debated Madison, and other de another delegate to the convention, and the principal defender of the Constitution. Madison prevailed, and the state voted to ratify the document. One of the reasons Madison had been successful is he had promised to work to add a Bill of Rights if we were elected to the first Congress. The original Constitution mentioned a few rights, but it had not come close to contain the comprehensive protection for individual rights demanded by the people and supported by Thomas Jefferson and other prominent founders. Madison's commitment to introducing such amendments had helped win ratification in Virginia and other states. Well, I don't know how much influence it had in other states. I mean, look, uh, in, in Massachusetts, which ratified before Virginia, there was a promise for amendments. Uh, in New York, which ratified before Virginia, there was promise for amendments. I mean, I don't think this was something that, you know, because Madison was going to be involved, that other states decided, well, we're going to do it. Uh, in, in Massachusetts, for example, it was because people like uh, John Hancock and Sam Adams said, okay, fine, if you give us amendments, we'll agree to support the Constitution. That's what got it ratified in Massachusetts. Not Madison's commitment. I mean, this is a little bit stretch, stretching the truth a bit here. <clears throat> but Henry was determined to stop Madison from proposing a Bill of Rights in Congress. Henry and other anti-federalists did not oppose a Bill of Rights. What Henry really wanted was a second constitutional convention. Henry wasn't necessarily opposed to stopping Madison from proposing a Bill of Rights, necessarily. But yes, he was opposed to the Constitution. The whole thing. Madison wrote it. He, he said as much. Henry, and look, he doesn't want... This system, and for good reason he doesn't want this system, because it's going to be a disaster. A new convention, he believed, was a chance to weaken the new government by rewriting the Constitution and proposing amendments that would return power to the states, similar to what they had under the Articles of Confederation. Well, this is how the document was sold to begin with to the states. The states were still essential. Um, and yes, that he thought the government created a, he thought the Constitution created a consolidated government. And he was proven correct, by the way. That it did, even with the amendments there, even with the Tenth Amendment, it still produced a it still produced, excuse me, a consolidated government. Henry also knew, however, that supporters of a convention were generally motivated by the lack of a Bill of Rights. New York and Virginia, at Henry's urging, had already requested a second convention. 
Under Article 5 of the Constitution, if two-thirds of the states submit petitions for a convention, Congress must call one. Henry was convinced that if Madison steered a Bill of Rights through Congress, the drive for a new convention would dissipate. This is true, because it was thought that, say, these restricting clauses, as what they called them, the preamble, would stop abuse of power. But they've been proven incorrect. They're just a piece of parchment. What Henry wanted were structural changes that would stop abuse of power. He has been, I mean, look, Henry has been vindicated by history. That's the thing. Henry didn't leave anything to chance. First, he denied Madison a seat in the U.S. Senate by persuading the General Assembly to elect two anti-federalists instead. Henry then created an eight-county congressional district filled with anti-federalists in which he placed Madison's home county. Henry also helped recruit a stellar candidate, war hero and future president James Monroe, to run against Madison. The contrast between the tall and affable Monroe, who voted against the Constitution of the Ratifying Convention, and the exceedingly shy, diminutive Madison was striking. Now, uh, Monroe and Madison were actually friends, and they didn't. M- Madison hated campaigning against Monroe. Um, I mean, so this was not something that uh, either one of them looked forward to. But how did Henry know which counties contained anti-federalists who would probably vote for Monroe? He had another detailed information available today to create a dist- district hostile to, spe- to a specific candidate or party. There was no party in this case. But Henry was able to look at how two delegates or the two delegates from each county had voted at the Virginia Ratifying Convention. If the delegates had rejected ratification, the voters from that county would likely favor Monroe. Of the 16 delegates from the district Henry devised, 11 had said no to the Constitution. Henry also included in the Virginia law creating congressional districts the requirement that a candidate for the U.S. House to be a resident of the district, thus preventing Madison from running in another part of the state. This, by the way, violated the Constitution, which requires only state residency to run, but he did it anyways. Now, this is interesting because, yes, the Constitution only requires state residency to run, but out of practice, we usually ask that candidates live within the district they are sent from. Now, this doesn't always happen, but usually that's what's asked of these candidates. Now, um, so this is, the states determined this. Um, this is more or less precedent. It's not in the Constitution. If you challenge it, certainly you can say, well, this is not in the Constitution. It doesn't say this is a requirement. So, yes, technically, Henry was violating the Constitution here by doing this. But again, um, it shows that the founders really thought you should probably live in the district that you're representing and not, I mean, it's like if, uh, you know, I live in Alabama, if I ran for uh, the legislative district out of Birmingham, do I represent, I mean, I live halfway across the state, would it? Would I be able to represent those people in Birmingham? Um, this is just, uh, it's ridiculous. Um, to think that the founders thought otherwise. But, well, I mean, you can live halfway across the state and, and have a be a representative from that district over there across the state. It just, that, that's, that's uh, not something they would have considered. Finally, at Henry's request, the legislature in November of 1788, re, 1788 reappointed Madison to the Lame Duck Confederation Congress, which would cease to exist as soon as the first Congress met the following March. Henry D. Madison would be in New York representing Virginia, not home campaigning. Anti-Federalists then spread in the district the falsehood that Madison believed the Constitution needed no changes and therefore would not offer amendments. This is true. This is what happened. And Madison eventually got back to Virginia, got frostbite in the process, got back to Virginia and um, campaigned, where he won by 336 votes. Then uh, he continues, Lebunsky continues, getting the Bill of Rights approved in Congress was an immensely difficult task. When Madison introduced the amendment, the amendments, he was appalled to find so many members of the House, including some of his own Federalist faction, were lukewarm or even hostile to a set of promises of personal freedom. But that's not all that was in this. 
right? The most important was the Tenth Amendment, uh, which be- the amendment that became the Tenth Amendment. They believed Congress should focus on more important tasks and that such changes could wait until the country had sufficient experience with the Constitution to know if they were necessary. Right, when Congress was saying, look, we got all this, we got to set up a government here. I mean, this is kind of a sideshow. But Madison convinces colleagues that the people were demanding a Bill of Rights, and if Congress didn't propose such amendments, the Second Constitutional Convention was likely to be held. Such a convention would have been a nightmare. Well, according to Madison and others, but maybe not. State legislatures would probably have reserved for themselves the privilege of selecting delegates and would have chosen those whom they could instruct to support only the measures that benefited their states. Well, this is how the delegates were chosen to begin with, you see. Uh, to Philadelphia. Both structural and personal amendments would have likely been on the agenda, and that would have led to a lengthy and heated debates over how much power the federal government should have relative to the states. Well, this is what they were debating anyways in Philadelphia. In addition, Article 5 says nothing about how a convention should be conducted, and Madison did not expect the same spirit of compromise would prevail. Madison had a great fear of a second convention, he says, knowing how difficult it had been to produce the Constitution of the first one. If, on the other hand, Congress proposed amendments, Madison wrote, that body will probably be careful not to destroy or endanger the new government. And so he made his case to Congress. It was hard enough for him to get two-thirds approval for the Bill of Rights in the House, in which Madison was a member. He then had to persuade the Senate to agree with the House, also by a two-thirds vote. Madison was not only the Bill of Rights' most eloquent defender, he had extraordinary legislative skills. It is unlikely anyone else could have done it. This makes the congressional election of 1789 one of the most important elections in the nation's history, one that resulted in the precious amendments that are the foundation of our freedom today. Now, okay, let's back up here. So again, his non-secret argument. The founders didn't agree with these things because James Madison might have been gerrymandered out, but th- that's not true. I mean, look, a good, a good section of the American population, the founding generation, didn't necessarily think these things were, again, were necessary. Um, and are they the... And the, one of their arguments was that every state already had a Bill of Rights. What do we need another one for? Right? I mean, the states get to determine these things. They're already protecting our, our uh, foundation of our freedom. They're already doing it. So what do we need another layer of this for? When the new government only has delegated powers. In fact, it was argued that by giving the government a Bill of Rights, it was going to enlarge the powers of the central authority. It would enlarge the powers of the central authority. Uh, imagine then, if Henry were creating, he continues the congressional district now. Today, map makers can use sophisticated computer programs to combine data from the census with geographic information systems and personal information, excuse me, gathered by commercial firms. Henry would know down to the block or precinct or even individuals, the party affiliation, racial and ethnic background, age and gender characteristics, and household income of prospective voters. He would also know how some often someone votes whether the precinct has elected Republicans or Democrats, what kind of car people drive, where they shop, what organizations they belong to, and many other pieces of information. Again, this has no relevance in the argument. Uh, With today's data and computers that can configure hundreds of potential maps with different boundaries in in seconds, there's little doubt Henry would have been able to defeat Madison. To give one example, Henry included Culpeper County in the district because both of his delegates to the Virginia Ratifying Convention voted against the Constitution. Yet, Madison ended up with more than twice as many votes there as Monroe. With modern computer programs, Henry would have excluded Culpeper and probably added Hanover County, which was contiguous to the district and whose delegates rejected the Constitution. It was also Henry's birthplace. As Justice Elena Kagan put it in her Rucho dissent, 
With all the data available today, gerrymanders are far more effective and durable than before, insulating politicians against all but the most titanic shifts in the political tides. These are not your grandfathers, let alone the framers' gerrymanders. So, uh, here's the, it, the, the, the data. I mean, this is what makes this thing unconstitutional because modern... St- but see, that's, that's a bad argument. It doesn't make gerrymanders unconstitutional because we have more data. There's nothing in the Constitution that prohibits this in any particular way. That's what, I mean, look, Roberts is saying that it's there. I mean, the founding generation used it. Obviously, they thought it was constitutional because the states could determine legislative districts. This is something that was given to the states. Before the Supreme Court decided the case this summer, which involved appeals from North Carolina and Maryland, several lower courts had concluded that North Carolina deprived Democrats of their First and Fourteenth Amendment rights by packing them into a few districts and scattering the rest so Democrats would never win seats enough seats to reflect their statewide support. But this is a bad argument. This, you're not denying someone your First Amendment right or your 14th Amendment right. What, what right are you denying by? I mean, look, are they voting? What First Amendment right do you have? You voted, right? You voted. You voted in your district. So win your district. I mean, even with gerrymandering, so what? Um, this, this is a bad argument. It was the first time any federal court had held that gerrymandering violated the Constitution by disenfranchising sick voters. It's disfranchising, not disenfranchising. Nobody was was disfranchised by this. You still voted. There's no disfranchising here. In 2016, Democratic candidates for the U.S. House in North Carolina got 47% of the statewide vote, but won only three of 13 seats. So what? Again, this is like the Electoral College argument. Well... Uh, President uh, Hillary Clinton won the popular vote, so she should be president. That's not how it works. you got to win your districts. In this case, in that case, you got to win the states. If you don't win the states, you don't win. When a federal court criticized Republican legislators, Representative David Lewis, the chairman of the state House Redistricting Committee, was unapologetic. I acknowledge freely this would, been a, this would be a political gerrymander. I think electing Republicans is better for the country than electing Democrats. Okay. Now, what's happened in some places that the states have said, all right, we need nonpartisan districting commissions. I mean, you can you can do things. You can have a you can amend the constitution of the states. You can do all kinds of things to prevent this. So change it. If you don't like it, change it. There's ways to do it at the state level, but don't rely on the federal courts. This is this is an this is not a federal issue. This is not for the federal courts to decide. There's no there's nothing about a gerrymander that violates the U.S. Constitution in any way whatsoever. In 2018, Republicans again won 10 of the 13 U.S. House seats, even though Democrats received almost 50% of the vote statewide. So what? So what? They didn't receive 50%. They received almost 50%. Well, so what? A lawsuit challenging North Carolina's House and Senate districts based on the state constitution is ongoing. Um, so, I mean, there you go. Uh, now, sue in state court, not in federal court. But this is what's going to happen. Democrats do it as well. In a Maryland case decided by the Supreme Court with Rucho, Democrats changed a Republican district so a Democrat could be elected. So what? This is how it works. In his majority opinion, Roberts wrote, partisan gerrymandering is nothing new, nor is frustration with it. The framers were aware of electoral districting problems and assigned the issue to the state legislatures. He added, the fact that such gerrymandering is incompatible with democratic principles does not mean that the solution lies with the federal judiciary. This is 100% true. This is not a federal issue. 
The Chief Justice also held that federal judges cannot consider gerrymandering cases because there are no discernible and manageable standards to guide their decisions. Lower court judges have been able to identify standards. So what? Um, and the fact is, I mean, this stuff, look, if you go back to the 19th century, you look at what was being discussed. I mean, the states were trying to get the ups, uh, you know, the uh, western part of Virginia was trying to get more power because they thought the Tidewater had too much power. I mean, this is stuff that goes on all the time. It's always going on. And these are state issues, not federal issues. Keegan was passionate in her dissent. For the first time ever, this court refuses a remedy to remedy a constitutional violation. What constitutional violation? Can you address that? Because it thinks the task beyond judicial capabilities. And not just any constitutional violation. The partisan gerrymanders, in this case, deprive citizens of the most fundamental, their constitutional rights. The rights to participate equally in the political process. Um, they did? I mean, did you participate? I mean, you're, you're saying they didn't participate. You're saying that they didn't go vote. But it says that they, almost 50%, so did they vote or not? I mean, they're participating, right? They just didn't win. So what you're saying, let me, let me rephrase that for Kagan. The rights to win elections. They think that the Democrats have a right to win elections. There's no right to win an election. <laughs> this is this is silly stuff. Uh, but I mean, this is this is where we are now, right? So the 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 fact is, if you don't win the election, well, then that's that's a, that's a violation of your rights. Uh, this is this is where we are. Today we can see gerrymandering as a root of many political ills. One being an ultra partisanship. Legislators in gerrymandered districts who cannot lose. In the general election, worry about only the primary, whose voters are frequently unrepresentative of the district as a whole. To satisfy primary voters, incumbents often move to the extremes, and they are careful not to be perceived as cooperating with the other party. Well, I mean, is, would he complain about, say, Ocasio-Cortez, who did the exact same thing in New York? Probably not. Gerrymandering literally costs us the Bill of Rights and could have plunged the country into chaos, which you would have never recover. I mean, can you, can you say hyperbole? Plunge us into chaos for what you would never would have recovered. Nearly costs us the Bill of Rights. Are you sure? Are you certain about that? One of the things he says in here, of course, and you can say Madison authored the Bill of Rights. Well, he did, sort of, but these were these were condensed from proposals from all the states. There were over 200 of these things. And if you look at the language used in the final drafts, I mean, you, you pull it straight from the other amendments that were proposed. Um, and again, first on those lists were generally the 10th Amendment. Not individual liberties, but the powers of the states were going to be represented and not abridged by this general government. It is difficult to exaggerate the harm that would have caused the nation. Hmm. I don't know. I mean, nobody really pays attention to them anyways. Um, so, this is a strange article. It doesn't even work. The argument is strange. The, um, it's just a, it's strange. It's strange. Uh, he goes from saying the founders didn't agree with it and then jumping into, well, this is why gerrymandering is bad. Well, where where do you see the founders didn't agree with it? Um, I don't know. I mean, I don't see that. This is a state issue. It comes down to structure. The argument here is that the federal government somehow has more power than the states over federal elections, which is not the case. As long as, as, long as the states don't deny someone the ability to vote based on their race, their age, or their sex, male or female, um, they can they can do just about anything they want with federal elections, as long as they're also part of the 
state election requirements as well. They can also design legislative districts. This is what the states were granted the ability to do. So where is this a federal issue? Where is it violating the first of the 14th Amendment? There's no, there's no violation of due process or uh, equal, uh, equal protection under the law. What's that mean? Uh, that meant that you can you not be denied due process when you're sued in court. You could not be denied the right to own property or to sue in court. That's all that meant. If you could vote, you could vote. I mean, these people voted. They're not being turned away from the polls and said you can't vote just because you're not going to win. I mean, so, so are we going to uh, say, well, you know what? The problem in California is that we, we don't have enough Republicans. I mean, we don't have enough Republicans. So what we need to do is ensure that these Republicans win seats. Uh, we're going we're gonna to limit the ability of the Democrats to do this. So we're, we're going to draw things up so that Democrats stop winning elections in California. No, we're not going to do that. Uh, but this is, I mean, so the left is, is you know, they're, they're opportunists. When they're not winning elections, they're saying, well, this is violating my First Amendment, my 14th Amendment. When they're winning elections, like, well, heck, we're going to do what we want. And I know the guy threw the bone and said, well, they did this in Maryland, too. Uh, but he's not really concerned about that. He's concerned more about North Carolina, which he sees as a purple state, and that could win elections for Democrats. I mean, this is clear. Um, and the fact that, you know, if you look at the history of, of the Bill of Rights and what was going on here, it's a little bit, he exaggerates quite a bit. I mean, this is, again, hyperbole and fear-mongering. It's not even good journalism. His argument doesn't even make any sense. I mean, he brings up, yeah, Madison might have lost for a gerrymandering, but does that mean the founders didn't want them or didn't like them? I mean, Madison, I mean, he wasn't too worked up over it. Um, so... Um, uh, I think that, uh, when you look at this particular issue, I think the federal courts got it right. The states can do what they want with legislative districts and that's their, that's their prerogative. This is why we have federalism. I mean, this is, this is how these things work. This is, if you're going to follow the constitution, you got to follow the constitution and Kagan clearly doesn't want to follow the constitution, nor did the other three justices that voted against uh, voted in the five to four decision. They don't want to follow the Constitution. They think that somehow the First Amendment and Fourteenth Amendment work to protect people uh, from being able to win elections. I mean, that's what they're saying. This is equal. You have equal protection, which means you have equal number of people in the legislature, or equal ability to win an election. That's not how it works. That's not how it works at all. Um, so, anyways, uh, that's my take on that particularly stupid article from Politico. And uh, these, uh, this issue of gerrymandering. And I'll see you next time on The Brian McClanahan Show. <laughs>